Okay, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to um, use this passage as an introduction to what I want to share today, which is about our post-pandemic focus. Um, and let me just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all the effort that went into this prayer time, for this prayer campaign. Uh, we thank you, Father God, for the leading of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the community event that this was. We pray, God, that you continue to bind us together, Father, in greater unity, in greater love, in greater purpose as we go forward in these days. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you, God, for the life and authority that's in it. Let us be blessed by it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read some passages for us here out of chapter 21, <clears throat> um, six verses. And again, I'm picking up a, a story thread here from what I shared last week. So this is what the scripture says. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. Now note that little phrasing there. He was armed with a new sword. He was a giant from Gath. Why did he have a new sword? Because David had already taken away the original Goliath sword. So Ishbi Benibab rearmed himself because David had already taken away the famous sword from Goliath in Gath. So we continue on in verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David's years are coming to an end. His soldiers are rallying to him saying, we cannot expose you. We cannot make you vulnerable. Verse 18, but after this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushai, uh, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, and El-Hanan, the son of Jeroorajim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now, some people may say, well, this sounds like it's the same Goliath that David fought. But actually, when you cross-reference this uh, with the passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, his name there is listed as Lami. Okay? It's the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath. It continues on. The Philistine spirit keeps coming against the people of God. So it says that there was war again at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So three quick things I want to point out from this story. Number one is that there are still giants to be killed. This is a, a timeline that helps us to frame and to understand where all, when all of this happened in the life of David. This is one of those beautiful slides I prepared last week but didn't get to show you. Um, this is a timeline of David's life. His reign was a thousand, approximately a thousand years before Jesus came. His total earthly life was 70 years. And so when he was 16, David was anointed by Samuel. He kills Goliath, 
the original Goliath at 17 becomes king at 30. Those represent all the golden years. After that, because of David's sin with Bathsheba, we know that he entered into troubled waters. The main thing to just focus on on this point is the red. David's about 60 years old, and this is when he had the second round of uh, battles with the Philistines. So there are three things here to bring out regarding this story. Number one, that there are still giants, and they are as menacing and threatening as the original Goliath. But they represent a new variant. They use the same techniques. They're taunting. They have the same size spear, same size shaft. They're harassing, but they just have different names now. As we read, Ishbanibab, Lami, Saf, and the 24-digited giant. You know, every generation has giants to deal with. The giants of yesteryear are not the giants of today. The new, there are new giants that are roaming. Economic disparity, mass violence and shooting, gender debates, euthanasia legislation, racial convulsions, political correctness, cancel culture, climate change, social media policing, hypernationalism. Those are all new giants that have come on the scene. Not to mention the thickening of spiritual darkness and spiritual rebellion. The proliferation of giants has been fierce. And the spiritual battlefield has been repopulated with different imposing forces. Second thing here is that it was not David that took out these giants. It was the next generation. God raised up the next generation of giant slayers. So as we see on this little tree, this blue chart that I put up here, Abishai, Elhanan, Sebekai, and Jonathan. Those were the new generation of giant slayers. And God is looking for the next generation of giant slayers, of the Abishais and Jonathans and Sebekais. You're the next generation of kingdom advancement that God is going to raise up. And the third thing to point out about the story is the next generation of giant killers came from the house. The victory over these Philistine foes was not four times as sweet just because numerically four more were taken out, but because they were David's spiritual children. Those that won the battle came from David's house. They had assimilated David's DNA. They had assimilated his breakthrough spirit. David's first victory over Goliath was a cause of national celebration. But these victories, notable as they were, I mean, they are written for us in the Bible, are now considered routine. That which was previously a breakthrough has now been normalized. And that is the legacy. That's what David imparted to the next generation. It's like Roger Bannister when he broke the four-minute mile. That was like this impossible record that could be broken. And for decades, people were trying to run a mile under four minutes. And then he finally did it in 1954. And then after that, people started running under four minutes all the time, even high schoolers. In fact, 46 days after he set that record, it was broken again. The spirit of breakthrough came on runners. The spirit of David came upon the next generation. Now, I wanted to highlight these three things from David's latter years because 
I believe the best years of Five Stones are ahead of us. Even though we've gone through this trauma of the COVID, the best years for this church is ahead of us. And just like this story represented Goliath 2.0 in David's life, I want to share a 2.0 future for our church this morning. Now, last spring, we talked about Five Stones 2.0. This was triggered in part by me stepping down as senior pastor. At that time, the pandemic had not hit. But when it did, given the emergency nature of the situation, I felt to return to my role, but in a modified form. Not as senior pastor, but as founding pastor and pastor of teaching and vision. Pastor John would become the lead pastor, and Alex, one of our elders, would become the coordinator for our Five Stones 2.0 plans. This was a necessary redistribution and handing off of some of my key responsibilities. But unbeknownst to me at that time, this would prove to be a very important shift. By virtue of carrying a different load, it freed me more to think about and pray through what Five Stones' future would look like once the pandemic had subsided. Like Noah, what were we to do after the floodwaters of the virus receded? Well, it turns out the Lord spoke to me in ways I did not expect and with a depth and breadth I did not expect. As I shared these thoughts with the leadership team, it just came to me and I summarized them as 2.0 of gospel disciple influence, GDI 2.0. Now, it's similar to Five Stones 2.0, but it's distinct. GDI does not cancel or replace Five Stones 2.0. In fact, all the more Five Stones 2.0 needs to be in play and executed upon. Whereas Five Stones 2.0 speaks to our infrastructure and the need to scale our logistics and training, GDI is about fresh post-pandemic vision and strategy for our church. This past Thursday at our prayer meeting, the Lord gave me a picture of me emerging from the ark with a hard hat and blueprints under my arm. This captures what GDI 2.0 is about. It's about the exciting new things that God has in store. Now, there's a lot to GDI 2.0, and I can't cover it all today, so I'm just going to give you a snapshot and break it down into four main thoughts. The first is that there is a fresh burden for the lost, for the harvest. During this time of pandemic, I was doing an extensive study on the life of Jesus. In particular, I was using the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and diving in deeply into the life of Jesus. And I was, as I was studying the life of Jesus, some new things came to me that I had not seen before. I mean, I've been studying and, and reading the Bible for 40 years, but it's like new stuff was starting to pop out from the pages of the Bible. And in particular, I just began zeroing in. I got arrested by this passage in Matthew chapter 4. And this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it says that he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, I'm reading from Matthew 4, verses 12 to 16, if you're taking notes. It says that Jesus left Nazareth, which was his hometown, where his mom and dad brought him up. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We don't have time to go into just these two small tribes, two out of the 12 that represent the nation of Israel. But Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Jesus wasn't saying, okay, I want a nice seaside, you know, 
view. I want to sort of have a nice spot for me. No, he was deliberately led prophetically by a prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 9. You can cross-reference this. And so God led him deliberately and strategically to Capernaum, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is how the Bible describes it. So that he could be with the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And indeed, a great light dawned on them. But here's what the Holy Spirit really, really spoke to me. This phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. This was not Galilee of the Jews. The word Galilee means circle. God was bringing him into this circle of people that were represented by the Gentiles. Right from the start, God sent Jesus to the non-covenantal people as well as the house of Israel. In other words, God was drawn to the hurting and the poor and the broken. I hope you heard this sub-theme that was coming out this morning in our service, the idea of brokenness and how God looks on our brokenness and he's drawn to our brokenness. Well, right here, Jesus was sent to the region in the nation where there were broken people. As I began meditating on this, this burden just started to come into my heart for the lost, for the hurting, and the broken, and how they need salvation. They need the power of God. They need the presence of God in their life. And all of a sudden, all of the Gospels was reframed in my thinking. All the charisma that Jesus poured out on the multitudes. When I say charisma, I'm not talking about personal charisma. I'm not talking about celebrity pastors. I'm talking about charisma in the Greek sense, the grace of God the power of God, the anointing of God, the signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus poured out that charisma on the Galileans. And so it just began to come to me. How do we practically incorporate this into our services? How do we practically make this real for New Westminster? So it just became imprinted on my heart that we should start once a month to have a 10-minute crusade in the middle of our worship set. Instead of one-minute call-out for red carpet ministry between songs two and three, we want to have a 10-minute free-flow time of the Holy Spirit, words of knowledge, prophecy, words of wisdom, healing. And we'll invite the city to come into this little crusade moment through our sandwich board on the sidewalk. Healing service this Sunday. Now, here is the fun part. How are we going to facilitate the power of God during this time? We want to involve the charisma of our members. Again, not charisma in terms of your personality, but how you have experienced the power of God. Almost every single one of us have experienced God's hand. And we want to invite you to share that power with those who are looking for that same touch from Jesus. You have food allergies? Come to our service and receive prayer. We have people in our service that have been completely healed from food allergies. You have a problem with smoking? Come and receive prayer, and we'll pray for you so that you can quit smoking. You're struggling with having children? Come and receive prayer. We have people that have been touched by the power of God. And so during this little 10-minute interlude, we want those of you that have experienced God's power in these areas to share your testimony and then join the red carpet team to pray for those that come to receive God's touch. 
Matthew 10, 8, Jesus said, freely you have received, freely you have given. You may have banked the goodness of God, but God wants you to open the vault and distribute it and give it to other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, comfort those with the comfort you have received. You are meant to be a grace pump. You are meant to be a comfort pump. All that God has put into your life, God is calling you also to pour it out. This is going to be awesome. might be a little scary, but it's going to be awesome. We get to reach out to the Galileans. Second part of our post-pandemic focus is a fresh burden for spiritual formation. What broke my heart more than anything during this pandemic was the number of people that didn't get into the ark and they got swept away. They lost their connection to community, spiritual family, church, and they got drowned by the coronavirus flood. In January, when we started our midweek service and activated our cell group, it was born of this burden that we needed people to connect and keep growing spiritually. We don't want to go backwards. We don't want to go in reverse. We don't want to recede. We want to still keep going forward. Yes, things were difficult. Everyone was under that, that difficulty, but spiritual formation is an essential service as much as hospitals and grocery stores. When we launched our Wednesday night meetings, I initially went crazy working on two sets of teachings throughout the week. But the grace of God and the rhythm came. And to my delight, the watering from our midweek content began to work. Rather than wilting and dying on the vine, those that committed to their cells and Wednesday night services were able to maintain and even increase their spiritual development. In my nearly 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've never focused on midweek meetings like I have the last six months. But my eyes were open to a powerful truth in Acts that was hidden in plain sight. When the apostles taught the people going from house to house in the middle of the week and not just on the weekends, it was their discipleship engine. This was not a second-tier responsibility. It was a prime responsibility. And I personally have been deeply impacted by these last six months. And it's opened my eyes to how crucial our role as senior leadership is in feeding the flock, not just on the weekends, but during the week. Using outside materials is not wrong, and they can certainly be great supplements. But they only serve as surrogate parents. They're like a take-in meal, but God wants to serve home-cooked meals. So everyone should be in midweek and cell meetings. Everyone. I would rather that we have greater participation in our midweek meetings than Sunday morning. Sunday morning is great. Preachers live for Sunday morning where the crowds come, the multitudes come, and we get to experience the buzz of everyone being together. But spiritual formation is best in small groups. In God's intent, the very core, the very bullseye of the Great Commission is that you become disciples, not attenders on Sunday morning, but that you become disciples, oaks of righteousness, as Isaiah says in chapter 61. Sunday attendance alone won't do it. You need that midweek cell group, small group meeting to help you grow spiritually. So there's a fresh burden for spiritual formation, not just while we're in the pandemic, but also as we come out of it.
Third aspect of our post-pandemic focus is a fresh burden for city impact. As I mentioned, I've been so encouraged by Hive Cafe and Hive City, but truth be told, I was getting impatient for the results. Waiting three or four years for these businesses to turn a profit so that we could distribute that profit to the city, it's been a long time. And this thought came to me, this simple thought, well, we don't have to wait to, for the fruit to fall from the tree, as in Hive City and Hive Cafe. We can plant flowers now. So we're going to take a fresh approach and, a, and take on a fresh push for city impact and go direct to the city with our programming. To this end, we've invited 12 new people to be part of our deacons team, asking them to dream with us, to dream with us about how to go about new ways of gathering people on Sunday morning and in our cell groups, to dream with us about new community initiatives, new community programs, ways of using our church building, new ways of utilizing resources in ministry. This new focus will be referred to as our Five Stones Action Center, of which Hive Cafe and Hive City will become part of. Five Stones Action Center is meant to be our heart to make good on our Jeremiah 29 mandate, to seek the welfare of the city, and to be lights, as Jesus told us in Matthew 5. I can't wait, and I'm praying for a clean sweep of all the people that we've asked to be part of the deacon's team. And hopefully, this will be up and running within a matter of weeks or a couple months. Fresh burden for city impact. Fourth is a fresh burden for citywide revival. You know, praying for revival is one of the most unselfish things that we can do. I was watching a, a worship song about prayer. And in that worship song, it poses this question. If all your prayers were answered, would it impact anyone else besides you? That's a pretty fierce question. When we pray for revival, when we pray for the church, when we pray for the city, we're praying for things that are not just directly related to us. We're crying out for God to be glorified. We're crying out for his fame to be known. We're praying for his redemption to touch the greater sphere than just our own little circle. And when you think about Jesus' ministry in Galilee and all the cities that he touched, why not ours? Why not New Westminster? Why not Vancouver? Are we not broken? Do we not need healing? Do we not need his attention? Come, Lord Jesus. Five weeks ago, as I was getting up on stage, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. Tell the church to pray this three-word prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our cry. A whole Wednesday night series on revival came out of that little prayer. If you haven't heard the series, then email us and we'll send you the link. We want the King of Glory to come in. Psalm 24. King of Glory, come in. And we want to invite him. We want this city to be a landing spot for the Holy Spirit to move and to do amazing things. Now, to this end, we're looking to add a second prayer meeting. We've had a Thursday night prayer meeting for many years, but we're looking to add a second prayer meeting. And then after the second prayer meeting, we're at looking to add a third and a fourth and a fifth. 
These are all the things that we do to nurture and to water the seeds of revival. We just can't sit and hope for it or wait for the 10 people that pray on Thursday night for, to make it happen. We need the whole church to be involved in prayer. Is there a hunger in you to see Jesus come? I hope so. I hope God stirs something fresh in you and that you can help be part of these prayer meetings. So a fresh burden for the lost, a fresh burden for spiritual formation, a fresh burden for city impact, a fresh burden for citywide revival. And I want to come back to Goliath 2.0, the story. It's a story of transition and change. It's not just David winning the battles personally. It's those from the house experiencing the victory. The success of future days at this church is meant to be won by you. The four warriors that defeated the new giants were a blend of the old and the new. Two of the, two of the guys that killed the giants were nephews of David. He was not only king of Israel, he was Uncle David to them. But two of them were completely outside the family. There were two brand new names that were entered into this story. And this is a, a perfect picture of the old and the new coming together. And this is meant to be a unified, multi-generational effort. You look at the Hebrew meanings of all these men's names, and it's just so powerful. Abishai means, my father is a gift. The reason why I want to go on the battlefield is because I'm inspired by my father. I love my father. My father is a gift, and I'm presenting myself. Jonathan means Jehovah has given. I know the provision of God, that which he's invested in me, the comfort that he's given to me, the charisma that he's given to me. I've been provided for by Jehovah Jireh, and I want to provide for you as well. These are all pictures of the kind of heart that God wants us to have as members in the church. Sebekai, one of the new names, means weaver. Anxious, desirous, enthused to connect with others. And Elhanan, his name means God has been gracious. The next generation, knowing the graciousness of God, knowing the doctrine of grace, knowing that we are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We need to get our doctrines in line. We need to get our orthodoxy in line so that we can preach with power. We can communicate with power. We can tell people about the true grace of God. That it's not cheap, but there was a son of God that died on the cross for you and for me. And may God anoint our words and anoint our lips so that when we speak, whether it's for 10 seconds or 10 minutes, these are arrows that strike the mark. Elhanan understood that God has been gracious. <coughs> this is a kind of unified, multi-generational effort God is calling forth in our church. And we know how it all ends because of what David wrote in chapter 22. As I shared last week, this is a complete reproduction of Psalm 18. But why did he fast forward it and bring it forward in this chapter? Nearly 40 years later, the verse says there, <clears throat> we don't have time to go through all 50 verses, but the opening 
stanza say, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. So here's what's cool. David first sang this by himself when he was a young man, just 30 years old. Now, by its placement in 2 Samuel chapter 22, he's 60 years old plus, but he's got a band of brothers and sisters to sing the praises with him. This is not a solo celebration anymore. It's a group celebration. And it's a group celebration because there's a group ownership. It's not just Abishai and Sebekai and Elhanan hearing the wonderful story of how David killed Goliath. No, they have their own testimony. We did it. And so we get to sing this song. Powerful ownership of Psalm 18. And so we, as we at Five Stones come out of the ark, Consider what your part is in these new plans. Look over, pour over the new blueprints and point your finger to that part that says, yeah, that's where I want to be. That's where God has called me. That's where I can contribute. In our action centers, on our healing teams, growing our cell ministry and spiritual formation system, which I'm calling small church uprising. Assisting with outreach, committing yourself to our new prayer meetings, and much, much more. All these things we'll share with you more and more over the summer until our COVID guidelines are completely lifted. Like the four that took out the new giants, this is going to be a multifaceted, multi-generational effort. We need everyone, each of your talents and giftings. I'm actually going to put all of these thoughts, of which I've shared maybe 40%, on a website, and when it's finished, we will release that web address for you to study and to read, and it represents also a church planting template for us going into the future. In that sense, this post-pandemic roadmap is like replanting the church. Now, we don't know who's all going to come back to the church. Before we, the pandemic hit, we had a membership count of around 200 people. Two-thirds would come on a Sunday, around 130 people. Then when pandemic hit, two-thirds of those two-thirds would log on and watch our broadcast streams. And then that began to degrade a little bit from two-thirds to one-half. So maybe we have about 60 to 70 people that are regularly part of our church. But we don't know what it's going to look like when we fully open up. Is everyone going to come back? This is one of the greatest sources of anxiety for pastors all across North America. Who did we lose during this time? What is our attendance going to look like when everything lifts? Now Noah, when he came from the ark, came forth from the ark, he was ready to go with eight people. His wife, his three sons, and their daughters. Okay, we have a day of small beginnings. We have a day of small beginnings. But we're ready to go because God has called us to multiply. So let's pray for impartation. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to fill our sails. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to give us fresh apostolic zeal as we come out of the ark. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that we can begin to open the windows and we can see that the waters are receding 
and we can see, Father God, that there's a new landscape before us. And we thank you for this encouragement, Father God, from 2 Samuel chapter 21, how as David was transitioning, we see, God, there was a new generation of giant slayers that was coming forth. There was a new activation, and there was a zeal and a breakthrough spirit that was imparted to them. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and do that for us here. Let us hear the voice of the Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Let a fresh grace, let a fresh vigoration, invigoration come to us. Let a fresh fire come to us. We don't want to be Laodicean. We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be just worldly contented with no appetite for you. We want your fire to come. So, Lord, do your work of grace. We are broken. We are needy. We can only do it through you. And we are crying out to you. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Lord. As great is your faithfulness to us, Lord. You, you have never made a promise and let us down, Lord. So we just praise you for that. You know, as, as Rich was just going through his, his sermon this morning, I just really feel that God is calling all of us you at home, wherever you are, that what is your priority in your life? You know, for myself as a father, it's really easy to think of my wife, my kids, my job, the mortgage. But God is asking you to place himself before all of those things. And it's a really, it's a, it's a daunting argument to think, well, how can I put God before my wife before my family and the answer is that he increases what what the lord was kind of just showing me was there was a an economics guy in the well in 1798 he came up with this theory that the world was going to run out of food and he'd calculated everything and his name was malthus and we talk about him now because he didn't think the pie could get any bigger. He didn't take into account technological growth. He didn't take into account all these things. So when he did the calculation, he said, there is not enough. And I think that's what goes on in our hearts sometimes is that we think, God, I can't put you first because there's not enough time. There's not enough energy. There's not enough resources to do that. And also all these things that you've also placed in my life. And... I think God is challenging you today to say, try it, because he will increase. I mean, I remember when I was called to be a deacon, we were pregnant with, with Hannah. And it's like, well, how can I become a deacon and have the time to do this? I'm about to have a, a kid. And then I remember being called to, to help with the eldership as an elder in training. And we had just had Jensen, and I think we were maybe just found out Madeline was on the way at every point it always seems daunting and all I can tell you is that when you say to God you're first and I know you will provide in me for these other things he does he does every time you know God also just brought up Moses Moses literally has in the Bible one of the it's this great scene because to me it's just so human. He argues with God. God tells him, you're going to go save my people. 
And Moses sits there and goes, well, I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to do this. I can't stand up in front of people. I know how to take care of sheep. And God in every time goes, okay, well, here's Aaron to speak for you. Here's a staff to show that I'm upon you. And he never let Moses down. Moses ends up becoming, he has an entire covenant named after him. He is a critical piece in how God set up the tribes. They were literally loose tribes and made them and forged them into a nation that was dedicated to him. And that was... That was because Moses thought he wasn't enough. He thought he couldn't do it. And the answer was, he's right. Moses couldn't do it. But God in Moses could. God could give Moses the pieces to do it. So, you know, I just think there's a challenge for God. You know, some of you have been asked to be deacons, and there's this immediate response of, I can't do that, or it seems too formal, or I don't want the responsibility. I don't... I don't want to have to stand up in front of people. Well, I think God is going to put that challenge before you, and I just think we need to answer with God, your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, I just think that, you know, we were talking about the giants. One giant stood the Israelites in stagnation and fear for days and weeks before David came to break that. Then we've got four giants come, and there wasn't one person ready to take them down. There was four that were willing. It wasn't one person that took them all down. He was the expert in giant slaying. Four of them were willing to come up, and I think that's why you see such a call for leadership, this expansion of leadership, because there is not going to be one leader that leads God's church into what's coming. There is going to be a lot of leaders God is going to put this on all of us. We can reach more when we let ourselves ride in him. You know, I just, I think of, of Carol stepping forwards in kids' church, and I just want to put that call out again. Investing in kids, you know, maybe when Rich is talking, I'm the next generation. But when I'm talking, kids are the next generation. And investing in them, they are going to do things that we will never have thought of. They are going to do things that God has called them to do that we thought were impossible. And they're not even going to give it a second thought. So I just want to close with that. Just I think there's some of you that are really feeling that call, whether you've been called to be a deacon or not. But there are some of you that I think are starting to feel that call for God to be first in your life, to become a priority. And I just really encourage you to do it. Trust him. Put your faith in him. The song said it. He will never let you down. Lord, we just thank you this morning. We just thank you that your presence came, that you are a living God that spoke to us this morning, that words that were written in a book thousands of years ago became alive today and applied to our lives today, and that is because you are the beginning, you are the end, the alpha, the omega. You are just... You're just such an amazing living God that knows the hairs on our head and speaks into our lives. So, Lord, I just pray for those that are just hearing that nudge, that call. Maybe it's a full kick in the butt, Lord. We just pray that however they're hearing it, Lord, that they would just answer, that they would say, yes, Lord, your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus.
Have a great week. Amen.